0: Well, today's passage from Genesis is a familiar text. It's a story that you have quite likely heard before. It's a story that's been adapted to film and stage, perhaps most famously by Andrew Lloyd Webber in Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, first performed professionally in 1972. It's been a staple of musical theater over 20,000 schools have performed the musical since the mid-70s. And now it shouldn't be surprising that a story from Genesis is fit for stage or screen. We've spent nearly every Sunday since September following this drama and its twists and turns that we find with this one particular family that God chose to carry out his redemptive mission in the world. And it's been well established already that this is a story unlike any other. Uh, But people have gravitated to the story of Joseph uh, in particular and how his dreams got him into trouble and then ultimately saved him. I'm going to read uh, Genesis chapter 37, our introduction to the Joseph narratives in Genesis and it's helpful to realize that this text today forms sort of a bridge Forms a unique literary unit, subset of Genesis. It's sort of like we're moving into an entirely new section of Genesis today. And so our sermon text today is from Genesis chapter 37, starting in verse 1. This is God's word to us. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he had made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to the dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream And what he had said. Then he had another dream. And he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood come let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him after all he's our brother our own flesh and blood his brothers agreed so when the Midianite merchants came by his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites took him to Egypt when Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there he tore his clothes He went back to his brothers and says, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. God, we thank you for your word. Speak and give us ears to hear as we consider it today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We talked two weeks ago in our time in Genesis 35 about how Jacob was feeling about his children. We jumped ahead to chapter 49. You might remember that. We took a peek at the end of the story to see how Jacob's blessing would pass over Reuben because of his immoral action and pass over Simeon and Levi because of their massacre of the Shechemites and would end up resting on his fourth son, Judah. But if you remember, there there was still a problem with Judah in his father's eyes. Judah was the son of Leah, the unloved wife. And not only that, but you'll see what Judah ends up doing with his life in the coming chapters. This fourth son to whom the blessing fell because of The actions of his older brothers will show us just how human he actually is. But that's for an upcoming sermon. And so while we know that the blessing, the redemptive line, will work through Judah, we also know that Judah wasn't Jacob's preferred or favorite son. Judah wasn't the beloved son. That title was quite clearly reserved for Joseph. Verse 3 of our text tells us that Jacob loved Joseph more than all of his sons. And he gives his son an ornate robe to wear. This was the robe of his father's love. It signified his father's favor. Of course, much has been said about this technicolor dream coat. But the fact is, we we don't actually know what it looked like. Essentially, every translation will have some kind of footnote attached to that verse it says something like we don't really know how to translate the description of this rope early translators assumed it must have been bright colors there's really nothing in the text itself that that tells us that and so that kind of stuck it became the typical understanding but it could have been ornate on account of embroidery or the flowing nature of the cloth and actually historians tell us that it could have just been the fact that it had full-length sleeves which was reserved generally for royalty or for the wealthy. Whatever the robe was like, whether it was colorful or not, its meaning is very clear. Joseph was the favorite son. He was the son that the father was eyeing, through whom the father hoped the family line would continue and be remembered. Jacob wanted to give Joseph the blessing. But of course, Joseph wasn't perfect. He has a dream, and I think the text leads us to assume that the dream comes from God. And in the dream, the brothers are all out in the field, binding sheaves of grain. The the grain would be cut by hand, of course, and then bundled together in manageable bundles and hung out to dry. And, and, And in the dream, Joseph's bundle rises up, and all the other bundles, the bundles of the other brothers, bow down to it. And in true brotherly fashion, Joseph tells them all about it. And this just intensifies their anger, their hatred toward him. We can trace that anger throughout the narrative, really, starting in verse, actually starting in verse 2. But I'm going to point you to verse 4 first. It says, when when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him. In verse 8, we see their response to the dream. They say, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule over us? And they hated him all the more. And actually that hate predated the robe and the dreaming. Remember, it begins in verse 2 when it says that Joseph brought their father a bad report about his brothers. Now we don't know what that report consisted of. It's not preserved for us. And, and certainly Joseph's brothers were capable of just about anything that we could imagine. But the word that's used there actually carries with it the idea that this was perhaps a false report. Or at the very least, uh, a carefully edited report to make Joseph look better and his brothers look worse. Siblings wouldn't do that, would they? So the anger intensified. It was deeply rooted. And then Joseph has a second dream. This time, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars are all bowing down to him. And he tells everyone about his dream. His mother and his father and all of his brothers bowing down in subjection to him. You can't help but hear sort of a growing sense of self-pride in Joseph, maybe even arrogance. Now, if you know the rest of the story, you know that these dreams would actually... Become reality. But pride and hubris and arrogance are always based in reality, right? So at least some level of truth. Only a fool would be arrogant about something that wasn't remotely true. Joseph is flaunting these dreams before his brothers. I think we can assume that he knows that their anger is growing. He seems to be, and, and we'll see later in life especially, he seems to be fairly self aware, fairly astute. He's enjoying being the spoiled favorite child. This flaunting is incredibly offensive. It's culturally unacceptable. The younger, particularly in that culture, would always bow to the older. The child would always bow to the parent. I think this understanding, reading of the text is confirmed by the fact that even Jacob rebukes Joseph in verse 10 for sharing that second dream of course we know what happens when this anger comes to its climax his brothers are out roughing it shepherding the flocks and joseph is back home with his father living in luxury and and his father sends joseph out to check on things and to report back and we've already heard this story right we know that joseph is going to report back with sort of a slanted take on what's happening and so the brothers aren't happy about what takes place They see him coming and they craft a plan to eliminate the problem. Some of them want to kill him, but the eldest brother, Reuben, speaks up and he doesn't want to kill Joseph. And so he comes up with another plan, convinces the brothers just to throw Joseph in the cistern. And Reuben was planning to sneak him out of the cistern and return him back to Jacob. Verses 21 and 22 both use this word rescue, that Reuben was trying to be the rescuer of Joseph. But of course, we know how the story plays out. Before Reuben can execute his rescue plan, Judah comes up with an idea, and Judah says, let's sell him. Let's sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites, Midianites. And they do so for 20 shekels of silver. Joseph already... 60-plus miles from home, is now on his way to Egypt as a slave. The brothers soak his robe in blood, convince Jacob that Joseph is dead, and attempt to comfort their grieving father. And this part of the narrative, this sort of introduction to the Joseph narrative, ends with Joseph arriving in Egypt, being sold to Potiphar. So now we've sort of wrapped our minds around what happens, around the history that took place in this passage and and so now I want to share two thoughts, two reflections that sort of flow out of this account that I think make it profound and helpful for us today. And the first one is this, we see the certainty of the cross in a world that demands glory. I want to say that again, think about those two important words, the certainty of the cross in a world that demands glory glory. I'm not sure how familiar you are with that distinction between cross and glory. It's been a conversation in theology for centuries. It comes right out of of Martin Luther's teaching about the way that we know and understand God. Luther contrasted a theology of glory with a theology of the cross. We naturally cling to this desire for glory. It's part of our human nature it's the very center of the way that we think about God but the theology of the cross is its opposite the theology of the cross says that we only really know and understand God through the cross through his suffering and death for us it teaches that God always accomplishes things in the opposite of the way that we would have imagined Let me show you a few examples from Scripture. We heard this earlier in Psalm 8. How did God establish a stronghold against his enemies? How did he silence the foe? If we were writing Psalm 8, we would have said through a show of force, through flexing, through saber-rattling, through an exertion of glory and power and strength, through huge armies. But that's not how God silences the foe. That's not how he establishes a stronghold against the enemy. The psalmist says it's through the praise of infants and children. And your inner theologian of glory might say that doesn't even make sense. And God says we're getting somewhere. We see the same in the Sermon on the Mount. If you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes a series of what we would call ridiculous claims, right? Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Really? Blessed? Mourners? Meek? Poor in spirit? God says, we're getting somewhere. Or when parents so obnoxiously bring their babies to Jesus and the disciples say, he doesn't have time for this. And Jesus rebukes them and he says... The kingdom of God belongs to them. He says, you'll never get in unless you get in the way that they get in. By just simply receiving. Or at the time of Christ's arrest, when Peter pulls his sword and in desperation cuts off the ear of Malchus. But Jesus tells him, no, put away your sword. It has to happen this way. And of course, a a theology of the cross gets its name from Jesus' crucifixion, where God displays his power, his majesty, his victory, his glory. How? Through death, by dying. The kingdom of God is upside down. We live in a world built upon glory. As sinful human beings, we flock to narcissists. If you don't believe me, watch TV, watch the evening news. We, our hearts in their natural state cling to narcissists because they're everything that we secretly want to be. They're the archetype of what our human nature thinks we should be aiming at, thinks we should be striving toward, people for whom the entire world exists for them, the center of their own worship and their entire world. But we arrive at Genesis 37, and we have the chosen... Beloved son, stripped of his robe, at the bottom of an empty cistern, and then what's worse, sold into slavery, owned, possessed by another, betrayed by his jealous brothers, Joseph is at rock bottom, right? He's at the very end of himself. You see, we have to be careful not to rush too quickly to later chapters in Genesis. We need to To hang out for a little while with Joseph in the cistern. How glorious. How on top of the world. How successful do you think Joseph felt in the bottom of that cistern. Or on that arduous journey to Egypt. Hundreds of miles through horrible desert conditions. Where's the God of his father Israel? Where are all these promises of land and blessing and prosperity and protection and rescue that he had heard from his father and grandfather over the years. Where is this God? Many of us have had that Joseph moment, wondering where God is when we're beat up, abandoned, hurt, betrayed. But some of us have also come to discover that God is found, God is known, not through success, Not through victory, not through comfort, but at the bottom of the cistern tied up on the wagon as a prisoner heading for Egypt. God is known through the cross, not through glory. God God has revealed himself through defeat, even through death, before victory. There's a reason that we have have a cross up here and not a throne right? Because we know God, we encounter God, we experience God first through the cross. and This is so profoundly freeing for us, life-giving for us, particularly in seasons of suffering, because we know that it is in those moments, in those times of suffering, in the in the bottom of the cistern, on the wagon on the way to Egypt, bound as a slave, that we have the opportunity to know God, to experience God, to encounter God in a way that we simply couldn't otherwise. We see things about God that comfort and pleasure and success have the tendency to drown out, to blind us to. Weeks ago, some of you I know, uh, drove out of town in the evening to see the northern lights. Why do we leave town? Because in town we can't see it, right? There, there's too much other stuff, there's too much, too much light. And, and so we drive out of town and into utter darkness, and then you look up. Think about the beauty of that imagery. Sometimes we have to go in to that complete darkness before we see God. God is seen, experienced, known through the cross, through suffering at the bottom of the cistern. Our world demands glory. The church has often given into that demand, and when it comes to spiritual things, that often looks like a theology of works. If I just do these things, then God will be pleased with me, life will go well for me. Jesus did his part, now if I do my part, we have a winning combination, and that's actually anti-gospel. Or you might hear it like this: God wants to bless you; He wants you to prosper. And if you will just sow a little seed of faith, God will reward you sevenfold. That—that's glory, right? That's God as a formula. It's a theology in which you are what matters, and there's no place in that understanding. There's no place in that theology of glory for the bottom of the cistern. The only way to understand Joseph's suffering, if you are approaching it from a theology of glory, is to say that it it must have all been his fault. When he musters up enough faith, when he starts to trust God enough, then God will reward him and deliver him. But but the reality is that every understanding of God that flows from a, a theology of glory is an illusion an image of god fashioned in the human mind but but at the cross and that's why we go back to the cross every single sunday because at the cross where jesus died where the son of god literally stopped breathing and was pulled lifeless to the ground we see and know god Working in the way that we couldn't have imagined, can barely accept, but it's the only way to know God. Whenever a a conversation about persecution comes up, some of you have been in these conversations with me, people sometimes get caught off guard by my response. I I often say something like, I think that it, it might be God's plan, God's desire that the American church experience some persecution. It might be God's will that persecution is coming. Theology of glory assumes that God's heart must be broken by persecution. That maybe even by the marginalizing of the church that we see currently in our culture. That that must break God's heart. That he must be wringing his hands. I don't think that's the case. God knows that we only know him. We only encounter him. We only truly experience and see him the cross there's a reason that Jesus said take up your cross and follow me that the story of Joseph shows us the certainty of the cross in a world that demands glory what else does Joseph show us here second we see the shadows of God's grace when all seems to be lost the shadows of god's grace when all seems to be light, we, we see scattered throughout this narrative shadows of god's grace or more specifically shadows of jesus now to be fair we've seen this all along in genesis example after example that points us toward christ but it's unmistakable in joseph he is a type of christ and in him we see these shadows these echoes of God's grace Joseph was the beloved son of his father hated by those who should have loved him prophesied that every knee would bow before him sold for silver coins stripped of his robe taken to Egypt after escaping death falsely accused great glory born out of great suffering the list could go on Joseph is a type of Jesus you see Jesus is the true and better Joseph we'll see this even more when we get into into Egypt but but you can't understand the significance of Joseph if you don't see this connection with Jesus if you don't understand how Joseph is serving as a precursor pointing us to the Savior will never really make sense of the ending of Genesis, we'll see it as as maybe as a series of moral lessons but we'll neuter it of its power. Joseph is pointing us to Jesus. Jesus is the true and better Joseph. And I think there's one more detail in the text that I want to bring your attention to that might help you see how strong this connection actually is. Look at verse 26 of our text, in verse 26 judah speaks up and judah says to his brothers these words he says what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood and then verse 27 says come let's sell him to the ishmaelites over two centuries before jesus was born these words from the old testament these hebrew words would be translated into greek Greek was the trade language of, of the day. That translation from Hebrew to Greek is called the Septuagint. And, and do you know how the name Judah was translated in the Septuagint into Greek? It's the Greek word Iudus that we would pronounce in English Judas. Joseph's brother Judas says, let's sell him. I think it's possible that there's one divine, that this is one cohesive story focused squarely on a plan to save and redeem God's creation. Shadows of God's grace everywhere. One more quick one that I'll point out. Do you remember what the Ishmaelites were carrying with them to Egypt? Anybody remember the one little detail that's sprinkled in there for us? Myrrh, right? Did you catch that? All over the place, echoes, shadows of God's grace. Joseph points us to Jesus. Jesus is the true and better Joseph. These are reminders that God and his mercy are with us in each and every situation just like they were with joseph many of us have learned this to be true that jesus is present with us we we can see his shadows around us even on our darkest days even in our messiest moments god's grace is there god's love is present just like joseph jesus would rescue his brothers like Joseph every knee will bow before Jesus and so we are invited today to bow before the true and better Joseph the savior to whom Joseph pointed you see we are the brothers in the story scripture teaches that Jesus died not because he was overpowered but because God's righteous law requires a sacrifice blood to be shed and so Jesus took the penalty for my sin and your sin upon himself. The beloved son who died invites us to live by believing in him. We're invited to confess our sin, to trust in what he has done for us. He invites us into relationship with him. When we consider the story of Joseph and how it points us to the true and better Joseph, the only proper response is repentance and faith. We repent because we know that we are the greedy, jealous brothers. We are the sinners who sent Jesus to the cross and we rejoice in the gospel in the good news that the better Joseph is ours forever. Let's pray. God, we we repent because we know that it was our sin that sent Jesus to the cross. We repent because we see so much of ourselves in the actions of Joseph's brothers, we repent because we want glory. We, want, we, we join our world in demanding glory. But God, we know that you are truly only known and experienced through the cross. That in our own times and seasons of suffering and struggle, we see you and we know you in ways that we never could otherwise. So we pray that you will give us grace today to trust in you give us eyes to see these shadows of your grace everywhere we see your your goodness and your mercy we believe that you are good and that all that you do is right even when it doesn't feel good and right even when it doesn't make sense so continue your good work in us as we turn our eyes to you trusting in what you have promised trusting in your presence even through the darkest valley, trusting in what your Son, Jesus Christ, accomplished for us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.